all, all speech communications was, was about talking, was about, uh, and, and you know, a lot of times we, we think we're communicating, but, but a lot of times we're not unlike that colonel on the phone and no one's on the other end. Paul is communicating to a church and they're listening. They are, um, you know what's interesting about these New Testament epistles? They were letters and they were read, they were read publicly as the church got together. So, so Paul penned this in response uh, to their gift, a financial gift, and the gift of Epaphroditus. They were concerned, as you know, if you've been with us for a while, they were concerned about his welfare and how he was doing because he was in prison in Rome. And uh, he writes back to them and is encouraging them because he's encouraged. Regardless of the circumstances, he's encouraged. Uh, he is uh, thanking them for what they have done. And, and I'm sure as they are sitting there, as we're sitting here tonight, they're sitting there. And imagine now, you know, you've, we, we've been looking at Philippians here for a number of weeks. But can you imagine being there, gathered with the other believers, and one of the elders gets up and says, we have a letter from Paul. My gosh. They all had to get on the edge of their seats, listening to every word. The first time anyone had ever heard this letter to the church at Philippi. It was a public letter. It was a public communication, and they were all ears, and they were listening. Now, Paul's getting ready here. We're, we're coming in. We're getting ready to land this thing, because we're in chapter 4. Uh, we're not going to land it tonight. We'll land it next week. But, but Paul is getting ready to sum things up here. And in, in chapter 4, if you have your Bible, let's turn to Philippians chapter 4. <clears throat> Because what Paul's going to do now is he's going to start uh, pulling things together. He's had, some, uh, he's had some specific truths in mind for the uh, people at Philippi. But it's as though now he's going to pull in some loose ends. They're really not loose. Uh, but he wants to make sure as he finishes things off that he hits these. And in a little bit here, we're going to see some uh, imperatives, some commands that he gave to the church. But that's not how he starts out. Let's, let's read in Philippians 4. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, now remember, they're hearing this for the first time. They're sitting there. Imagine yourself being there. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, so stand firm in the love, uh, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Uh, then, then, uh, now remember, this is a public gathering. And then he says this. I urge you, Odia and Syntyche, to live in harmony in the Lord. I think it got real quiet, real quick. Because, you know, they're sitting there listening, and Paul's talking about, uh, in, in, in chapter 1, he talked about standing firm. In, in chapter 1, he says, uh, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And they're listening, and they're finding out that Paul's on top of things and has a perspective of the goodness of God. He, he rolls into chapter 2. He's talking about the importance of uh, not looking out just for your own interest, but for the interest of others, uh, of having this same mind in you which was in Christ Jesus, who did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, so he laid aside his privileges. Jesus became the servant. He's the model of our servanthood. You know, they're listening to this, then he talks about himself, then he talks about uh, Timothy, and he talks about Epaphroditus. I mean, they're, they're catching all this. Um, he rolls in the three, and, and they're listening to him, talking about forgetting what is behind, and pressing on. Uh, this is good stuff. It, uh, it's got to be thrilling stuff. And then he drops a bombshell. I urge you, Odia, and Syntyche. To live in harmony. My gosh, you could have cut the air with a knife. Because, and now, here's my guess. Here's my guess. Don't know for sure. My guess is Euodia is sitting over here. And Syntyche is sitting over here. Someone has uh, called these two women uh, odious and soon touchy. <laughs> uh, what was the issue? Well, we don't know what the issue was. But uh, they're people. Uh, you know, someone uh, observed when I was in seminary 
that ministry would be wonderful if it wasn't for the people. <laughs> you know, the, the, the books are great, and the sermons are great, and the, uh, all that other stuff, but, but you start dealing with people, and you're going to have some issues. Uh, that's just life. Isn't that interesting? Um, uh, re relationships are very fragile. And um, relationships can get, uh, can get crossways very, very quickly. Uh, there's an issue here in this church. We don't know much about the issue. All we know is that it was a big enough deal for Paul uh, to mention it and to address it head on. He doesn't take sides. He doesn't say who's right. He doesn't say who's wrong. He basically says, work it out. Notice what he says in the next verse. He says, indeed, true comrade, I ask also, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This is an interesting passage, verse 3, because he's talking to his uh, the New American Standard calls him, indeed, my true comrade. Um, the idea here is one of yoke fellow. Uh, we don't know exactly who this person is. There, there are all kinds of theories. But um, he is appealing to a particular individual. Some have even thought that this, this particular Greek word is, is, is a name, that he's speaking to someone in particular. We don't know. But there's an appeal here that someone would help these women to work out this situation. That, that, that takes a lot of guts. That takes a lot of courage. You know, dysfunctional families, we hear a lot today about dysfunctional families. What is a dysfunctional family? A dysfunctional family is a family um, that doesn't deal with reality. That's basically it. So a dysfunctional family is a, is a family let's say, where the father is an alcoholic, but nobody ever talks about it uh, because they won't deal with reality. It's too painful to talk about. It's too difficult to talk about. Paul was not into dysfunctional families. See, functional families, we, we hear all this stuff about dysfunctional families. Well, how about a functional family? Wouldn't that be a nice thing? What's a functional family? Uh, a functional family is a family that doesn't ever experience conflict. No, that's, that's not it. I just thought I'd see if you guys were listening. No, everybody has conflict. Everybody. Because you've got people. And whenever you've got people, families would be great if it wasn't for the people. Right? Churches would be great if it wasn't for the people. Work would be great if you didn't have to work with people. School would be great. If you, see, it's always people. There are greatest joy and there are greatest pain in the rear end. Um, people are people. And there are no, uh, gosh, you guys have heard this a million times. Uh, there are no perfect families, there are no perfect churches, there are no perfect workplaces, because you've got people. And we're all flawed. We're, we're, we're all terribly flawed. And if you think you aren't, if you think you're, you're not flawed, you are deeply flawed. Um, we all tend to think of ourselves higher than we should. We all have a tendency to think those other people are the problem. But in actuality, um, oftentimes the problem is us. And uh, David, it was David who said, um, he, he said, uh, it, was it in Psalm 19? He says, Protect, uh, acquit me of presumptuous sins, of, of hidden sins. We all have blind spots. We all have things in our lives that we can't see that everybody else sees. Um, that's why we have people problems. There are no perfect families. There are no perfect churches because, uh, because we have people and we're flawed people. Uh, but functional families and functional churches operate a little differently. If there's a problem, you acknowledge it. If there's a difficulty, you say we've got a difficulty. If there's an issue, you don't ignore it. You don't walk around it. You say, we've got an issue. See, functional families deal with their issues, and they deal with their problems. That's the difference between a functional family. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I'm getting choked up by my own 
teaching tonight. Uh, this it'll happen again, just because of what I'm fighting here. But, gentlemen, the thing we have to understand is, uh, we think it's easy. We think it's easy not to deal with the problem, um, and in a sense, it is. But but ultimately, you're going to pay a much greater price by not dealing with the problem. So in relationships, in marriages, you got a problem? Do you ignore it? I don't think so. I think you talk it through. I think you, I, I, as painful as it is, your marriage cannot mature if there is an issue that cannot be discussed. The, the way that you mature and the way that you grow closer together is not by ignoring the problem, but by dealing with the problem. It, with a teachable heart and a good spirit. Um, uh, Romans says, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You're going to have to deal. Paul here is not ignoring this, this situation. Everybody's aware of it. My guess is uh, it, was, it was uncomfortable. Uh, uh, it, was, uh, it was strange when they would get together because they would avoid each other. Could have been in the past they were friends. But um, it had to be a bombshell when Paul gets functional, when he refuses to be dysfunctional. I want Euodia and Syntyche to live in harmony. Gosh, I'll tell you, it'd be priceless to have been there. And, and, and Paul realized that I'm sure this has been going on for a while because he appeals to somebody to help, to help make that happen. Interesting, um, uh, interesting reference here because he mentions his true comrade, then later he talks about Clement uh, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose name are also in the Book of Life. Clement was what, one of the early church fathers. Um, the church fathers were the men who led the church after the apostles died um, and passed off the scene. They were the first generation of leaders um, after the apostles. We have some of the writings of Clement. We still have them today. He was in this church. And Paul appeals to him uh, to help work this thing out because, because families can't function the way that God wants them to function when you've got a problem. See, what, what was happening here is this. And it's very Taylor, you're a good man. Thank you so much. That's good water. Thank you. I appreciate it. You, did you see there in, um, in chapter 4, verse 1, um, he wants them to stand firm in the Lord. And he says, he says earlier, he says, I long to see you, my joy and my crown. These people were, were the trophies of God's grace that, um, that, that, that Paul was grateful for. Uh, he was there at the beginning. He helped found this church, led people to Christ. Um, he knew these folks. And he did not want there to be a split in relationships. Um, these things, if they're not dealt with, uh, churches can split. And churches split all the time. I took a course. <laughs> uh, I took a course in seminary on Baptist church history. And it was a required course. And I was just shaking my head. I thought, my gosh. The, I mean, I, I thought, what a waste of time. I want to tell you, that was one of the best courses I've ever had in my life. Um, they should have called it uh, Baptist Split History. <laughs> because when you start studying, uh, and it's just not Baptist, but um, there, there are different kinds of Baptists, and there are different controversies. And see, historically, that's been the case. And what happens is you, you always have a group that stands firm on the Scripture, and then you have a group that begins to get loose on the Scripture. Now, sometimes there are other issues involved. But when it's a theological issue, you have to... Uh, see, we, we have those who talk about the importance of unity. Unity at all costs. That's not it. You never, you never go for unity over truth. Our, our, our unity is based on truth. As much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. So our, our unity is based on our fellowship in the Word of God. If someone wants to depart from the Word of God, if someone wants to get under 
uh, out from under the authority of the Word of God, that's dysfunctional. You've got to deal with that. You can't ignore that because you're putting yourself in authority over the Scriptures. You're putting yourself in authority over the Word of God. You can't do that. And, and the, the appeal is always to unity. That's a great thing. But it's got to be unity based on the truth. The truth is superior. The, the, the truth is supreme. If, if we waver in truth, then we don't have unity. Um, how do you deal with your relationships? The easy thing. We think the easy thing is when there's a conflict. Uh, nobody likes conflict. We, we like peace. Uh, I mean, just look at this whole thing with uh, Iraq. Nobody likes conflict. In fact, we got a whole bunch of people that are dysfunctional. Because what they're saying is, let's not deal. See, we got this 100-pound elephant sitting in the living room on the sofa. See, dysfunctional people, you got a, elephants aren't 100 pounds, are they? You've got a two, three-ton elephant in your front room sitting on your couch. Dysfunctional people walk around and act like the elephant isn't there. Well, he's there. What's functional is to deal with the elephant. But sometimes, you see, we so despise conflict that we will avoid conflict, which is the road to peace. But wanting peace so badly and hating conflict, we refuse to get ultimate peace because we're not willing to take a situation on. It's true in the world. It's true in churches. It's true in families. We're family leaders in here. We're men. Your husbands, your fathers. You, part of your leadership in your home is if there is an issue that is unresolved, part of your leadership responsibility is to initiate and you move to help resolve that conflict because that's a cancer in your family. That's a cancer in your home. It can be a cancer in a church. Why do we put people through chemotherapy? Because we hate them, because we love them. Will that chemo be painful? Absolutely. But we'll do whatever we can do to save somebody's life. That's the way it is in relationships a lot of times. You've got to be willing to do something painful in order to try and bring healing uh, to the body, where it's, uh, it's the body in a family or it's the body in a church. Now let's move on, because this gets real interesting here. He says in verse, uh, verse 4, he's going to begin now. He's going to begin to give a series of commands. And this is where he starts pulling in some loose ends. He starts pulling from here, and he starts pulling from here, and then he grabs one over here. We're going to see a series of, of five imperatives or five commands that kind of come like machine gun fire. And the first one is in, uh, the first one is in verse 4, where he says this. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Paul is giving these believers a command. It's an interesting command to rejoice in the Lord. Now, inevitably, some of them were in some very difficult circumstances. Some of them were in some very painful circumstances. Some of them were in some circumstances that they wished they could get out of. They were praying fervently when God would release them from the circumstances and change the circumstances. Notice, if you will, Paul does not say to them, he doesn't, he, he doesn't command them to rejoice in their circumstances. He says rejoice, what? He says rejoice in the Lord. Uh, and then he repeats it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. This, uh, this is one of the hardest things, I, I think, that, uh, that we come to grips with in the Christian life. Uh, we are a particularly uh, self-centered culture. Um, we don't know a lot about suffering. We think we do. But uh, truly, we don't know a lot about suffering. We're Americans. Uh, we've got electricity. Um, we've got indoor plumbing. Most of us have hot meals. Um, we, uh, we have, uh, we have uh, thermostats in here 
that control the temperature. Nobody is in here uh, freezing. Nobody in here is just too hot because you see we live here in an atmosphere where every room is, is climate controlled. Um, you know, one of the great things about uh, taking a missions trip is that it makes you thankful. It really does. If, if you're in a set of circumstances that are, are really unpleasant, and it happens to all of us, and, and you're praying that God will release you from those circumstances, and, and you're tired of being there, and uh, you're starting to get worn down, and you're starting to find yourself in a rut, and you're starting to find yourself dealing with a little bit under the surface of uh, resentment towards God that you're still there. Because see, you were praying uh, a year ago that you'd be out of these circumstances, and you're still in them. Um, and not only, not only is there resentment, but maybe it's starting to edge over and creep over a little bit towards bitterness. See, when we find ourselves in those circumstances, one of the greatest things you can do is, uh, is, is hook up with a team that's going down to uh, Haiti. Or, yeah, you know, we're talking about a 10-day mission trip, or going down to Mexico, or because what will happen is you'll go down there, you're going down there to minister, but what's going to happen is you're going to go down there and you're going to get ministered to. Because you're going to run into some thankful people that don't have one one-hundredth of what you've got, but they've got joy. We really don't know much about suffering because we're Americans. We have been given so much we have, uh, and as a result, we, we have started to expect so much. Um, God has been so gracious, and God has been so kind. Uh, are, are, are some of you in difficult circumstances? Yes. And some of you are in the most difficult circumstances you have ever been in your entire life. But see, that's no reason not to rejoice in the Lord. It doesn't say rejoice in the circumstances. Because those circumstances are difficult, and they're, and they're painful, and all of those different things. Um, well, I, I think the perspective here is that we back up, and, and we rejoice in the Lord who is sovereign over our circumstances. The American church tends to be weak on God, on his character, and who he is. We have become, in the American church, very man-centered. We tend to think um, high thoughts of man and the will of man. We tend to think smaller thoughts of God and who God is. We've got it flip-flopped. About 25, gosh, longer than that now, about 35 years ago, J.B. Phillips wrote a book, and the title was, Your God is Too Small. Uh, we, we have, uh, we have uh, made God... Uh, we, we, we have cut him down. We have whittled him down. Um, we forget that he is sovereign. We forget that he is in charge. We forget that he is in control. And we get upset with him because we're not seeing the response to our prayers that we want to see. And that's really a foolish thing to do. If you're here tonight... Uh, and you're a little upset with God, you need to knock that off. Because you know what? You're in sin. And the reason you're upset is that you're self-centered. You have no idea what God is doing in your situation. None of us do. We, we, see, you're seeing it from one perspective. God is doing 10 million things that we can't see that we can't understand and that we comprehend. But he, is, he knows where you are, and he knows what's going on, and he knows how long you've been there. And he knows your frustration because he understands your thought from afar. But he's got something in mind for you. He, he said, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for calamity. Not for calamity. You think it's calamity. He knows where you are, and he knows what you're... He's got plans, and it's not for calamity, but it's to give you a future and a hope. See, it's an issue of trust. We, we sometimes feel abandoned. The guy in Psalm 77, turn over there with me for a minute. 
Because, I mean, we're all going to find ourselves at this place at one time or another. The guy in Psalm 77 is struggling because of where he is circumstantially. Uh, he, he's, he, this guy, is a, he's a hurting puppy. Look at Psalm 77. Um, let's just read it. My voice rises to God. I'll cry aloud. My voice rises to God. He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. This guy can't sleep. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, I'm disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. Thou hast held my eyelids open. I'm so troubled, I cannot speak. Look down at verse 7. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten how to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Then I said, it's my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. In other words, not too far past, he was doing well. And God's hand was on him and he was in favorable circumstances. Now his circumstances have changed, and he's wondering about God, and, and he's wondering, wondering about the actions of God. You know, what, you know what Paul would say to this guy? He would say, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. If you guys, some of you have walked with Christ long enough to be in circumstances like this, and wondering why God is allowing this, wondering why God has put you there, wondering... Um, what good come out of this? And then you've come through it, and now you look back, and you see the goodness of God. Isn't that amazing? That the, that the most difficult and painful chapter of our lives, when we're in them, we, we would, if we could be released, we, we'd get out as quick as we can. Five years down the road, is it not true that you look back on that situation with a whole different perspective? You see it as a rich time. You see it a time of tremendous growth. Uh, you, you see it, in, in hindsight, as a time of deepening maturity, but not when you're in it. You know what would be a great thing? I'll be honest with you. I've been trying to work on this this year. I decided I'm going to start trying to apply the Word of God instead of just teaching it. And particularly this year, what I'm trying to do I'm trying to do this. The circumstances that I wish would change, and they aren't changing, I'm, you know what I'm working on? I'm working on not letting those circumstances rob me of my joy. I'm trying to take a step back and say, Lord, I don't understand this. And you know, quite frankly, I don't like it. And, and I, I'd really appreciate it if you'd get this over with as soon as you can. I, I might have mentioned this a while back. I've got something I've been praying about for three years. And I'd really like God to answer this prayer. And you know what? He has an answer. And for two and a half years, I, I, I think I came close to praying every day that God would fix this situation. About six months ago, you know what I did? I quit praying about it. Now, I'm, I'm aware of it. And I know God's aware of it. And, and here's what else I know. I, I mean, I'd like it to get over, but you know what? I, I, I just stopped praying about it. Now, we kind of have an understanding because he understands me. I'm just not bringing it up because I brought it up for two and a half years, and it's become fairly clear to me that he wants me to wait. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wait. And when he's ready, you know what he'll do? He'll step in. Until then, he wants me here. I don't know why he wants but he so, you know, I'm going, to try, I'm, going to try and remain, I'm going to try and remain teachable. I'll tell you what else I'm going to do. I'm going to say, Lord, thanks that I'm here. I don't like it, but I thank you that you're sovereign. I thank you you're going to bring good out of this. I thank you that you're doing something. I don't know what you're doing. Don't let this rob me of my joy over Thanksgiving. Don't let, the, don't, don't let me be irritable over Christmas because this hasn't been resolved. Let me have that joy. Notice the next thing he says. You guys still with me? I know you don't deal with this stuff. <laughs> we do deal with it. The next thing he says, uh, uh, this is an interesting one, especially in the context of, uh, what book are we in? Philippians? 
I just blanked there for a minute. The, the next thing he says, the next command, look at verse 5. He says, let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Uh, this word forbearing here is, is kind of hard to get our arms around and really get the sense of it. The best I can come up with is let your non-defensive spirit. Now, it, it, it encompasses more than that. Uh, William Hendrickson in his commentary says, let your big-heartedness, that's, what, that's how he describes it. Because there are different nuances to what he's talking about. But one of the central ideas is that you're not defensive. I find that interesting because he's just talked about Yodia and Syntyche. My guess is one of those women, if not both of them, the reason they still got issues is that they're defensive. When we're defensive, we can't grow. When we're defensive, we can't mature. Um, When we're trying to look out for ourselves and look out for our rights, and see, a lot of times that's why conflict doesn't get healed. Because we're Americans and we believe in the Bill of Rights. And uh, we have certain unalienable rights as Americans. That's kind of drilled into us. You know, the fact of the matter is, we really don't. Um, uh, we uh, We have a right to be mature. We have a right to be teachable. And we have a right to give up our rights. Isn't it interesting in uh, 1 Peter, when Peter's talking about husbands and wives, uh, verses 1 through 6, he talks to wives. Verse 7, he talks to husbands. And then he says to sum up, let all be um, harmonious, brotherly, sympathetic, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Because what's the tendency? In a marriage, well, someone does something to you, you're going to come back. It's evil for evil. It's insult for insult. What's the tendency at work? Same thing. A non-defensive spirit. Uh, you're, you're staying with it. Uh, why was Euodia and Syntyche, why was this thing going on and on, and Paul had to deal with it? Maybe somebody was defensive. Maybe someone felt like they had to stand their ground and speak up for themselves. You know, when Paul says the Lord is near, there are, two, there are two views on what that means. One view is that he's speaking of the return of the Lord. And it could be it. I don't think that's it. You know what I think? I, I think when he says, let your forbearing spirit here, when he says, um, let it be known to all men, the Lord is near. You know what I think he means by that? I think he means the Lord is near. He's right here among us. Scripture says the eyes of the Lord in every place. God sees these relationships. He sees how we respond to them. Um, you know, we studied Joshua a while back, and one of the things we learned in Joshua is that Joshua always let the Lord go ahead of him and fight his battles. There's great wisdom in that. A lot of times we think we got to go out there and we got to fight and we got to make sure we get. You know, there's tremendous wisdom in letting God fight for you. The Lord is near. Uh, let your if you're if you're running around trying to defend yourself and assert your rights. And, and there's, there's, a, there's a legitimate place and time and an appropriate way to do that because, um, because you're made in the image of God. Some, even sometimes in, in marriage relationships, some women have interpreted this that they're to be doormats for dominant husbands. And guys just run over them. And they don't have any self-esteem. They don't have, that's not the word I want. Dignity is the word I want. They lose their dignity because there's a point where you stand. You don't follow a husband uh, into sin. Uh, And if there's sin in the family, I think a wife needs to say in a right spirit to a husband, sweetheart, you're wrong here. She does him no favors to let him to continue. See, that's dysfunctional. Because they're not only husband and wife, but they're brother and sister in the Lord. Um, I've been thinking about this verse all day. Uh, When I was a... uh, I was a youth pastor for 11 months. <laughs> I didn't do real well at that. Um, Mary and I, uh, we had just gotten married, and I was almost done with seminary, and I was in, anyway, I don't want to give too many details here. But we wound up going to a church 
fairly large church. And I was invited to oversee the youth ministry. I was going to finish seminary. It take me about a year. But I'd be working, and I could do the seminary. I just had a few classes. That's what we did. Looked like a great situation. Uh, it wasn't a great situation. It was a beautiful church, new facility, new building, new youth building. First Sunday I got there, I went, uh, was there early, and I went to use the restroom. It was locked. I said, why is this locked? And one of the deacons said, oh, we've locked those restrooms for six months. So why do you lock restrooms? On Sunday? He goes, yeah. He says, well, we got drug problems here. This is a nice evangelical church in an upper middle class area. And they got so much rampant drug use in the youth group that they had to shut down the bathrooms. They didn't tell me that <laughs> when we were dialoguing. I mean, it was out of, and, and, and I mean, this thing was out of control. It was out of control. You had certain teachers intimidated by guys just running over them. I mean, it, it was out of control. And um, it had to get under control. So it had to be cleaned up and taken care of. And, and so I got some parents upset with me because they had kids that, were, that they couldn't control. And they had kids with bad spirits. And they had kids, so I just started dealing with certain kids. And uh, yeah, it got real interesting. But uh, there was one kid in particular. And I'd been there about two months, and I knew I was in the wrong spot. Um, there were continual problems. And the guy that was the senior pastor, he was a good guy. But um, he was a people pleaser. And some of the guys in the church whose kids were out of control were guys on the board. And he'd already caved in. He supported me at first, then he stopped supporting me. And there was one particular event that happened with this one kid who was the big troublemaker. And uh, I asked him to do something in front of the whole, he refused to do it. And uh, I almost, I almost pulled the chair out from under him, but I didn't. Um, I wish I had it. <laughs> but I didn't. Hindsight was probably the best thing. What I did was, I said, I'll be back in two minutes. I had about 100 kids in there. I went down, pulled his dad out of a class. And I said, I got this issue with your son. And I'm taking him out to the class, and I wanted you to know, and I want you to escort him out. Well, anyway, it got, it got to be a huge issue. And I wound up meeting with this father and son with the pastor. And we're sitting there and going over, and the pastor said to me, I want you to apologize to this boy. I said, I'm not doing that. He said, no, Steve, you need to have a gentle spirit. I said, I'm not doing that because that's wrong. He's wrong. And that's part of the issue in this church is that there's sin going on and there's defiance not only at the youth group but among the fathers, and you won't deal with it. I'm not doing it. And uh, that was it. I said, I'm done. <clears throat> What was interesting was that I was hoping to continue in ministry <laughs> at some point. And there was a small church in Northern California that had been talking to me about becoming their pastor. 56 people in the church. And uh, they called me about two weeks later and said, uh, we'd like you, looks like, looks like this is going. We, we're, we're, we just have one thing left. We'd like to talk to your pastor and get his recommendation. And I remember Earl Smith. I said, Earl, you know what? He said, Steve, could I have his phone number? And I said, yeah, you can. I said, but Earl, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, he's not going to give me a recommendation. And he said, he's not. And I started to tell him why. And for some reason, I decided, well, Earl, you know what? You just go ahead and talk to him. And I decided, instead of trying to defend myself, if the Lord was in it and I was supposed to go, let's let the Lord take care of it. I gave him the number. I hung up. And I told Mary what was going on. And I said, gosh, Mary, I don't know. And about two and a half hours later, Earl called me back. And he said, Steve, he told me that you did this, and then you did this, and that you did this and you did this. 
I said, yeah, that's true. He said, you know, it's interesting, though. The more he talked, the more his position didn't make sense to me. He said, you know, Steve, I think I would have done the same thing you did. I said, that's really good to hear, Earl. Because <laughs> I was scared to death. And, and you know, that, that was a good lesson for me. You just let the Lord handle it. You don't need to run around defending yourself. You know, Jesus knows. You don't need to be your own attorney. Let, let him. The Lord is near. He knows what's going on. He's, it's his church. You don't have to give a defense. Let, let, let God give a defense for you. There's another one he gives in here. I've got to watch my time because there's a real juicy one we don't want to miss here. In fact, we're on it. Look at verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Joe, we finally got here. Joe's been telling me for weeks that this is his favorite passage in the Scriptures. And it's a great passage. Be anxious for nothing. This is a remarkable, uh, this isn't a security. Uh, we can be anxious about the fact that we don't have a job. We can be anxious about the fact that, uh, that the tape stopped. Um, didn't it stop? I don't know what happened. Jim, you, yeah. We can, um, we can just get anxious. A anxiety, yeah, another word for this is worry. Be anxious for nothing. Be worried. And this is, this is crazy, is it not? Be anxious for nothing. Sometimes the scripture, uh, is, it, is it realistic? Is it? It's like that passage in James. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Oh, yeah, I do that all the time. <laughs> it doesn't say feel it is joy, does it? It says consider it. Something to do with your mind. Consider it as joy when you encounter various trials. Knowing, knowing what? That the testing of your faith produces endurance. Hmm. Think that, uh, cross-check that with Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance, with endurance, the race that is set before us. Fixing your eyes on Jesus. How do you run the race? By getting endurance. How do you get endurance? By going through difficulty. That's how you get endurance. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. So let's just stop here. So tonight, what is it that you're anxious about? There's a guy in this room, and I won't point him out. But we had a conversation a few weeks ago on a Wednesday night about some extremely difficult financial circumstances. Um, and as he related to me, he's never quite been in this kind of financial circumstance before. Um, but he recently gave me a report that was amazing. Um, now, did um, four million bucks come in? No. But you know what's happened? Because he's still under, he's still in circumstance. But you know what's been interesting? Is that he's got stuff due, he's got bills due, and, er, and, and, and he's at a point on this day and he's got it due the next day, and guess what happens the next day? It shows up. I talked to a guy this weekend in California. He's been out of, he's been out of work a year. And when he got laid off, he said, you know, Steve, my wife and I looked at our situation we figured we could make it four months. We had resources to make it four months. He said, I got to four months, I was still out of work. But we kind of reevaluated and we realized we had enough to make it for three more months. He said, we weren't quite sure how that happened. Then we got three more months when we knew we'd be out and we got to that point point, we realized we had enough for another quarter. And then, and see, so he's a year out. Um, be anxious for nothing. Uh, anxiety is worry. But you know what this chapter, uh, I, I think, dovetails with? is Matthew chapter 6. 
Why don't we flip over there? Because this is real life stuff. Um, and, and I want to read, let's read Matthew 6, and then I want to give you a shot from Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, the great British preacher who died in 1981. Uh, Matthew 6, verse 21. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Look at the birds of the air. They do not snow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Peter says no. Animal rights people say no, you're not worth more than they. God says you're worth more than they. Verse 27, which of you by being anxious can add a single cubit to your lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil, they don't spin. Yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow was thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? With what shall we clothe ourselves? Here's one of the greatest verses in the Bible. All these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Right there, it takes tremendous pressure off. He knows you need these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I'll give you a couple shots from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, uh, this is his, his book uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. I want to read you some stuff I underlined about 25 years ago. Uh, and he's commenting on this passage. He says, here our Lord shows his final understanding of the condition. And what he's talking about is anxiety and worry and what it really is. He says, worry, after all, is a definite entity. It is a force. It is a power. And we have not begun to understand it until we realize what a tremendous power it is. We so often tend to think of the condition of worry as one which is negative, a failure on our part to do certain things. It is that. It is a failure to apply our faith. But the thing we must emphasize is that worry is something positive that comes and grips us and takes control of us. Worry is a mighty power. It is an active force, and we do not realize that we are certain to be defeated by it. You cannot beat worry. If it cannot get us to be anxious and burdened and borne down by the state and condition of things that are actually confronting us, it will take this next step. It will go on into the future. See, sometimes we're worried about what's right here, but if it, if it can't beat us there, then it takes us into the future. Um, remember, uh, Jesus talked about you men of little faith? Give you a couple, let me give you a couple shotguns here. The question that obviously arises is, what does our Lord mean by little faith? What is, it, what is the exact definition? He does not say you notice that they have no faith. He just says they have little faith. Because of their lack of a bigger faith, they are obviously more prone to the worry and anxiety and to this care which attacks us all in life. Our Lord indeed goes so far as to say that worry in a Christian is always due ultimately to a lack of faith or to little faith. So stop and analyze yourself. So you anxious? You worried about something? Ultimately, why is that? It's a lack of faith or it's very, very little faith. Okay. <clears throat> then he says this. A little faith is a faith which does not lay hold of all the promises of God. That's brilliant. And that's simple. Uh, Lloyd-Jones goes on and says this. He says, I once heard a man use a phrase which affected me very deeply at the time and still does. I am not sure... It is not one of the most searching statements I've ever heard. He said that the trouble with many of us Christians is that we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but that we do not believe him. Did you catch that? See, it's one thing to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. 
It's one thing to believe on him. It's another thing to believe him. To believe what? To believe his promises. What are the promises? Just look there in Matthew 6. Look at verse 32. All these things Gentiles eagerly seek. Your heavenly fathers, your father knows that you need these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. The story was told about a guy who was a chronic worrier. I mean, he was just known as a worrier. Never been a day in his life when he wasn't worried. He wasn't worried about the economy. He was worried about his kids. He was worried about his health. This guy never had a good day. This guy was a pessimist. One day he's walking down the street. A friend of his is on the other side. Sees him, starts to say hi, but stops because this guy that he sees is actually whistling and seems not to have a care in the world. He says, man, that looks like Fred, but it can't be Fred. He gets closer, it is Fred. He says, Fred, what's wrong? Fred says, nothing. He said, well, that's what I mean. You don't seem worried. He says, no, I don't worry. He said, I quit worrying. Worrying was eating me up. I just quit doing it. He says, you're kidding. He says, I'm not kidding. It's changed my life. He said, I've known you 30 years. You've been worried every day of your life. He said, I know, but I changed. Well, what did you do? He said, it sounds crazy, but I hired a professional worrier. <laughs> In fact, I just came from his office. He said, this has changed my life. I've been doing this now for two weeks. I get up in the morning, here's what I do. I take a legal pad, I write down everything that could potentially worry me at the day. I write it in detail on my way to the office. I go by this guy's office, I drop it off, and you know what he does? He worries for me. He's sitting over there right now, I guarantee you he's worrying over that list. He said, I'm telling you, this has changed my life. I said, that's unbelievable. He said, I, look at me, I'm a new man. He said, well, what, what does that guy charge? He says, well, it's $10,000 a day. The guy says, my gosh. He said, where are you going to get that money? He said, I have no idea. That's his word. <laughs> How do you get, see, you men of little faith. Oh, gosh, we all struggle with this. Let me ask you something. How do you get, see, what I want to know is, how do you get big faith? How do you get the big faith? You know how you get big faith? By having little faith and be being, being scared to death and being anxious and so sick over worry and anxiety that you can't sleep at night because you don't know how you're going to make your mortgage payment because you don't know what you're going to do if your wife dies from cancer because of this and this, and isn't it amazingly how infinitely creative we can be with worry? Some of us are not real creative guys. We're not known as creative until we start worrying. And then we come up with the most, we, we can paint every possible scenario that could go wrong. Why? Because worry is a force. It's an energy. It has a grip on us. And we've got little faith. We've got little faith in the promises of God that God will do what's best. Now see, part of the problem is, a lot of times, we have something, when we're in these circumstances, we want God to fix it a certain way. You know what you have to do? You gotta take your hands off that. What you have to do is, you've gotta surrender that to him. Say, Lord, I don't know what's best. I know what I want, but you know what? I come to the cross and I lay this before you, and I throw myself on your mercy and your goodness and your kindness and your softness. Yeah, you, you know, you, the, the world will tell you that the vast majority of things, 99% of the things we worry about don't happen. That's never helped me. Does that help you? That's never helped me one iota. You know why? Because I figure I'm the guy that's going to be the exception. And then what do I do? Well, here's what you do. What you do is... You take the promises of God, you take the goodness of God, you take the character of God, you take the holiness of God, you take the mercy of God, you take the kindness of God. Psalm 119 says the Lord is good and does good. Does that mean he always does what we want? No, but he's a God who knows what's best. 
I don't know what's best. So what I do is I take it to him, and I don't prescribe. I don't write a prescription and say, Lord, do this. Here, fill this. Fill this. We're not doctors. He's the doctor. We take that worry, we take that anxiety, and, and see, here's something that's really healthy. Here's, here's what's really healthy. What if the worst does happen? See, deal with reality. Don't be dysfunctional. What is the worst that could happen? All right? Let it happen. Say, Lord, even if that happens, the thing I dread, even if that happens, I know you'll be faithful. I'm, I, do I want it to happen? No. But Lord, I know you would bring good out of that. Why? Because there's a promise of Romans 8.28. I, I mean, I, I go back to Romans 8.28 every week in my life, don't you? It's living off the promise. We know that God causes. Sometimes, I'll be honest with you guys, sometimes I feel in here that I repeat myself. Myself. I'm just singular. I'm not plural. I don't repeat myself. I repeat myself. I don't know how many times I've referred to Romans 8.28 in here. But you know why I do that? Because I live off it. What do you live off of? We know God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So let the worst happen. Job said, Job, Chuck's been in Job now for 12 years. <laughs> and do you remember 12 years ago when he was starting? Or 12 weeks ago, whatever it was, Job said to his wife, who was a real sweetheart, he said, shall we accept prosperity from the Lord and not what? Adversity. God knows best. What's the worst that can happen? Let the worst happen. God will still bring good. God will still bless your life. Wouldn't it be great to give up the worry and the anxiety? How do we consciously do that? I think we consciously do it by living on the promises. Now, when Jesus says, don't be anxious, he's not talking, he's not saying, don't think ahead and don't have planning. He's not saying that. He's talking about paralyzing forethought. The problem with anxiety and worry about the future is that it can so lock you up that you get paralyzed in the present. He doesn't want you paralyzed in the present. He wants you walking with him. He wants you living off the promises. So what do you need tomorrow that's going to keep you up tonight? How about this? How about taking the promise of God taking Matthew 6, committing it to memory, and running it over in your mind tonight as you attempt to go to sleep. Putting the Word of God and chewing on it and meditating it, and you know what will happen? You'll go to sleep. And then watch God work tomorrow. He'll meet your need tomorrow. Will He meet every need you're going to have for the next six months? Probably not. But what you need tomorrow will be there tomorrow. And then you'll meet that need, and then a couple hours later you're thinking, oh yeah, but man, but, but, but then tomorrow I need, well guess what? He'll meet that. We've got too cotton-picking much in this country. God led them in the wilderness for 40 years, and they never had a surplus. Never. He fed them every day with manna. He gave them what they needed for that time. One of the best books I've ever read. John Piper wrote. It's called Future Grace. And John's premise is that the grace of God, have you been recipients of the grace of God? Sure. So have I. You know what? The grace that you have received up till now will do you absolutely no good tomorrow. It won't. You know what you need tomorrow? And you know what I need tomorrow? Grace. Future grace. I'll tell you something. We got, Mary and I have got three days left to finish this book. And she got sick for about six weeks. I mentioned that to some of you guys. And she couldn't, I mean, she was flat on her back. And, and about two weeks ago, three weeks ago now, she came out of it. So I thought we weren't going to make it. And now, suddenly, we're making tracks. And we're at the last chapter. And we got this great idea that I, we don't, I told the publisher, I got this great idea for a, for a chapter. But last night, I still had no idea what was in it. <laughs> I had all the other chapters worked out. 
This last chapter, and, and Friday, they need this chapter. And, la and, and I, I mean, we, we've done everything. And, I, and, and last night, we prayed, and I, and I said, Lord, um, I need that to come together in the morning. I, I, I'm too tired tonight. I just need you to give it to me tomorrow. And I've been kicking this around and chewing on it for weeks. I got up this morning, and uh, I'm just kind of, I'm looking around. Stuff. I found a disc that I forgot about, and I opened up this disc, and on there was about three chapters that I had written for a book that was never published about seven years ago. And I'm clicking on the first one, and yeah, click on the second one. I read, I went, chunka. <laughs> that's it. I showed it to Mary. She said, that's it. I said, that's it. You know what? We'll have it done by Friday. Did I have it last night? No, but I was too tired, and I was finishing another chapter. I didn't need it until this morning. I got it this morning. God does it all the time. That's living on the manna. That's living on the promise of God. That's Piper says God's grace, all the grace you need is future. You've received a bunch of grace, but that's not going to do you any good in the morning. You know what you're going to need in the morning? You're going to need grace. God's grace has never been early, ever. But here's the good news. God's grace has never been a minute late. It always shows up just in time. There was this big deal about 10, 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago now, about the Japanese and how they were just kicking our tails. And uh, so we had business guys go over there and study. And, we, and they found out that there was a guy named Edward Deming, who was about 90 years old, who had had this idea called just-in-time inventory that all the big car makers had rejected. Well, he went to Japan, and they all embraced it. And, and suddenly Deming, who's 90 years old, is doing all these seminars, and they're reading his books, and all this. Deming is the original. Because, see, now we know about just-in-time inventory, that you don't have six months' worth of axles sitting in Arlington at General Motors. That's not what you do. What's smarter is the axles that you're going to need tomorrow for those Suburbans, they show up tomorrow. So you don't have all this uh, inventory and you don't have all this. It just, it's just in time. Edward Deming is the originator of just in time, they said. No, he's not. God's the originator of just in time. He's always been just in time. And what you're worried about and what you're anxious about will be there, not before, not after. It'll be there when you need it, just in time. That's the promise of God. Be anxious for nothing. Here's our application project. Here's our homework. Second week in a row, I've given you homework. I don't remember what I gave you last week. But I remember mentioning it. Here's the homework for tonight. The homework for tonight is to go home, take the anxiety and the worry that's been nagging you today. Take that. Give it to Christ. If, if you need to just go to sleep reading your Bible, reading Matthew 6, then just, just take a verse out of that. You don't need to just take a verse that hits you between the eyes and just chew on it. And just chew on it. Your Father knows that you need these things. Lord, I thank you that you know my need. I thank you that you're my Father. I, I thank you that, that you've taken care of everything. I just, I put, and you just start, start thanking him. Start, just let the word of God take over your mind. And then go to sleep. That's your assignment, is to go to sleep. And then get up tomorrow and watch how God supplies what you need just in time. You guys, you guys in for this? Let's sleep tonight. You know what? Why don't we rest tonight? Wouldn't that be good? Boy, what an idea. I, I, I love Mary Crowley. What a great line when she said, every night I give all my worries to the Lord. 
he's going to be up all night anyway. <laughs> and he gives to his beloved, the scripture says, even in their sleep. So let's thank him. Father, thank you that we don't have to be anxious because you're sovereign, because you're huge, because you see our situation. You've got your eye right smack on us. Lord, you know everything we're worried about, and you know stuff we, we don't know that we ought to be worried about. We don't know all the contingencies. We don't know how everything hinges on this. And, but Lord, the fact of the matter is, it just hinges on you. You haven't forgotten how to be gracious. You know precisely what is best. So, Lord, we trust you. Lord, we would like to have big faith. So, Lord, big faith comes from little faith taking baby steps. And we see you take care of us, and then our faith grows a tiny bit for the next time, and then the next time, and then the next time. And before we know it, we got 10, 20, 30 years of your faithfulness behind us. And it makes it easier to sleep. I pray that you'd help us to sleep tonight. I pray that you would help us to rest. I pray, Lord, that tomorrow we would anticipate when we get up, that we wouldn't be anxious, that we would just say, Lord, I'm looking forward to seeing your grace today. And then, Lord, when it, when it shows up, may we just stop and say thank you. And then a few hours later, when the tendency will be to start worrying about the next day, may we not do that, but may we thank you and rejoice because of who you are. Lord, you take us from faith to faith. You scare the tar out of us sometimes. Sometimes we don't understand. But help us to live on the promises. Help us to live off of them, Lord. To, to live. Not... not not to be racked with worry, but to live. Help us experience this. Help us to gear our minds for action and to trust. In Jesus' name, the great name, the, the name above every name we pray.